everyone? It's great to see you all here. Last Sunday, Ellen was telling me about their Sunday school class. She teaches the twos and threes. And uh, they were learning about King David and his kindness to Mephibosheth. And she said, you should hear twos and threes say Mephibosheth. And I thought, I'd like to hear it. Don't say that. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and ask, can you say Mephibosheth? Do that right now. You could almost swear saying that the wrong way, couldn't you? Anyway, let me give you some more names. Amalekites, Hittites, Amorites, Jebusites, Israelites, Moabites, Canaanites, Termites. That's an old joke. Yeah. Philistines. Those are some of the nations or groups of people from the Old Testament. They were all about the same size, not really all that big. But have you ever wondered why there's no Moabites today? or Amorites, or Philistines. You hardly ever run into anybody at work that's a Jebusite. Why did Israel survive and not the other? The only group left are the Israelites. And not only did Israel survive, but in the subtitle of his book, The Gift of the Jews, Thomas Cahill asked this question, how did a tribe of desert nomads change the way the world thought and felt? What is it that distinguished Israel from all the other people that do not exist anymore. It wasn't power, it wasn't wealth, it wasn't size. Israel was insignificant enough that countries like Mesopotamia, Rome, and Egypt, and Greece virtually never even mentioned Israel in their historical records. Israel had a little time of prosperity and strength, but that was about it. So we have to ask, how did that tiny nation change the way the world thinks and feels? And it is because they had a book, a book they called the Tanakh. Now, when you get to the end of that word, it's kind of like you're clearing your throat. It's a Hebrew guttural sound, Tanakh, okay? Say it with me, Tanakh, okay? <laughs> it's a word made up from three letters, T or Tau uh, in the Hebrew, from Torah, that's the law. N is Nevi'im or Nun in the, in the Hebrew, um, that's the prophets. And then K for Ketuvim, the writings. Law, prophets, and writings made up the Tanakh, for us, it's the Old Testament. And that book was unlike any other book that existed before because it contained truths and ideas that had never hit the world before. The Tanakh says that instead of there being little tribal gods all over their place, there is only one God, and that one God is holy and loving, and with, He created all things, and He plans on redeeming all things. That was radical. That book, unlike any of the other mythologies or religious peoples around Israel, said that human existence is not just an endless cycle of repetition over and over again, but human existence is more like a story. And the story has a beginning, a middle, and a conclusion. There's going to be an end to the story, and it's an end to look forward to. That book says that this God created human beings in his own image. That was radical. That means that humans have an indescribable splendor about them and that they are accountable to this just and holy God. Those ideas changed the world. That book so defined Israel that they called themselves simply the people of the book. Other nations were known for other things, for their power, their armies, their leader, or their industry, but Israel had the book. The Apostle Paul said, what advantage then is there of being a Jew? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. To help his or her child learn the book was every parent's greatest responsibility. You need to know this book, even the name Mephibosheth. When a young man fell in love and wanted to be married to a young woman in order to ascertain whether or not he was worthy of their daughter, the custom was for the family to give him, the wannabe groom, a Tanakh test. 
to see if he deserved this bride. And the more desirable the girl, the more beautiful and intelligent she was, the more wealthy her family was, the higher the score, he better get on the Tanakh. And it was the only education system where if you passed the test, you'd actually lose your bachelor's degree. Get it? Uh, I thought that was funny. So I'm going to give you a Tanakh test, a Bible test. You tell me if this quote is in the Bible or not. God helps those who help themselves. No, Ben Franklin. The wages of sin is death. Yep. By the way, I'm going to do these literally. Some, some might be close. I'm, I'm going to try to catch you on some of these. God don't like ugly. No. <laughs> Cleanliness is next to godliness. Nope. God works in mysterious ways. No. The concept is in there, but that phrase actually is not. The unexamined life is not worth living. No. Socrates. Once saved, always saved. Nope. Moderation in all things. Nope. Do you not know that your body is a temple? Yes, it's in there. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. Yes. A fool and his money are soon parted. No. The concept is in there. It is close, but no. Cast all your anxiety on him. Yes. Charity begins at home. Absolutely not. Now, you did pretty well, but you can't marry my daughter. So, Ellen and I are headed to Virginia over the holidays, and there is a new museum in Washington, D.C., just opened two weeks ago called the Museum of the Bible. And I think it is wonderful that it's in Washington, D.C., because you cannot understand America if you do not understand the Bible. Taking the Bible out of our education system is just bad education. It's crazy. The Bible is part of history, it has impacted history, it's impacted America economically, socially, in our government, in our court system, in, in, in every phase of life. In Jesus' day, a historian by the name of Josephus, writing to a Gentile audience, tried to explain the Jews' passion for the book in this way. Time and again, we've given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. It is an instinct with every Jew, from the day of their birth, to regard them as the decrees of God, to abide by them and if need be, cheerfully die for them. Time and again, the sight has been witnessed of prisoners enduring torture and death rather than utter a single word against them. We will die for this book. These are the words of God. And the concept in this book have changed forever our world in which we live. In the New Testament, when Jesus is introduced in the Christmas story, Matthew's gospel makes sure we understand that this birth was a fulfillment of the Tanakh, the book. Read Matthew 1 and 2 sometime and see how often you find this phrase, uh, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet or something like that. How often the birth of Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. When Jesus got older, the first time we see him as a boy, he's at the temple and he's talking and teaching the rabbis about the book. He's ask, asking questions about the book. The first time we see him as an adult, he's been being led into the spirit, into the wilderness. Uh, Satan tempts him three times and three times Jesus quotes from the book. The next time we see him, he's beginning his ministry. He's going into a local synagogue and he reads from the book. His whole ministry and teaching was clarifying and fulfilling that book. The last day of his life, he's hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Directly from Psalm 22, he's reciting the book. Once he's resurrected, they formed the church, and the first thing we're told about this community in Acts 2 is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They had the book and the scriptures that Jesus loved in his teachings about them. 
In our day, L. Ron Hubbard, the guy who wrote about Scientology, has been translated into 65 languages. That's a lot. The Book of Mormon has been translated into about 100 different languages. But the book, best estimate from Wycliffe, is at least one book of the Bible has been translated into 2,932 languages. At least one book of the Bible has been translated into almost 3,000 languages. People have died for this book. They've lived for this book. Some have gone to foreign continents to get to know cultures and tribes and spent years, sometimes their whole lifetime, studying languages so they could give people the book. It's going on around the world right now. Every year, 65 million copies of the book are bought in the United States are given away. Nothing else is close second. The average home in our country has three copies of the book. So, a lot of people own a book, they cheer the book, they buy the book, they give the book, they own the book, they just don't read it. According to George Gallup, two-thirds of people surveyed in this country could not name who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Fewer than half of all Americans could name the first book of the Bible. Eighty percent of Americans claim to believe in the Ten Commandments. The vast majority of them cannot name four. So we'll fight for the Ten Commandments. We've got to keep them on the courthouse lawn. We'll hang them up and we'll believe in them. We just don't know what they are. Isn't that a little weird? It's kind of like a young man who falls in love with a young woman. Oh, I love her. She's the love of my life. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. Yeah, what's her name? Um, didn't get that. Serious? See, 80% of born-again Christians even, people like you and me, not the general public, you and me believe the phrase, God helps those who help themselves as in the Bible. In the book of Acts, it says that this little church was formed and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they found that when they devoted themselves to the book, they came to know God and God used them and God used the book to change them. I do want to give one caution sign about this. Some people in Jesus' day read the book and they accumulated knowledge and memorized it. The Pharisees would be an example of that, but they missed Jesus completely. And today, once in a while, you run into some of the meanest, most unchristian attitudes come from people who know the book. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. See, here's the danger. The Bible does not give eternal life. The written word points us to the living word. So the book is not the ultimate word of God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate word of God. Now, we still have to read it, and we need to know this book. It is inspired by God. It is vital to our walk with God. Man had a photograph of his girlfriend. Her name was Joanne. And he loved her so much. And as a result, he would carry this picture of her in his wallet because it reminded him of her whenever they were separated. And he was so in love. I mean, he was whipped. I mean, sometimes he'd pull out that picture and kiss it. But kissing that photograph was not the same as kissing her. That's kind of an analogy you wear with the Bible. It is God's picture of Jesus. And we love the Bible because we love him of whom it speaks. The Pharisees were kissing the book. Miss the Lord. The purpose of the book is to know Jesus and let him change our lives and give direction to our lives. Paul writes, all scriptures inspired by God. And it is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God might be proficient, equipped for every good work. The book is so that we can be a different kind of people, be God's people. And there's no book like this one. God uses this book to change us. So I want to give you an example of how the Bible might make a difference in your life. I'm going to have a little acrostic there for you, three letters spelling out RAP, R-A-P. 
R would be reflect. could also be read, but it's read and reflect. Reflect on it, spend time with it, think about it, meditate upon it. Uh, for example, in Ephesians 5, 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. You could just reflect on that for a while, guys. What does that all imply? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, it gets worse, guys. You need to be willing to die. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, the most obvious way to reflect on that for guys, anyways, husbands love your wives and, and all that. But I want to focus more on what Christ does, where the text says the bride, the church, you and I, we are cleansed and washed with water through the word. And we can certainly apply this to the church as a whole because the church is always needing washing. But we can also apply it to our individual lives how you and I need washing. We all do. So you read and reflect on that. Just think about it. Think about uh, how, why do you wash something? Because it's dirty. Heard about some college students who decided to have a contest to see who could go the longest without washing their bed sheets. After one year... They called it a draw or a wash. Get it? <laughs> anyway, they were dirty. Now, what happens when you wash something? Just reflecting on this, um, the soap and the water move through the fibers of that dirty fabric, and they lift out the impurities and remove them from the fabric. So when you come to Jesus and through the word, Paul says, he wants to make us holy and cleanse us and wash us with water through the word water. I think here is baptism. The word is the, the sanctification that happens after baptism. The word gets into the fabric of our being and cleanses us. It doesn't change the fabric itself. You know, we're still who we are, but it gets the dirt out. Don't you like being clean? Man, I love uh, the feeling after a shower. Same with Jesus. I love being cleaned up. So when I come to this book, I bring my mind and I bring my heart and my attitude and I realize, okay, there's some dirt in there. My mind is cluttered with some false beliefs and attitudes and, and deadly feelings and twisted intentions, some misguided perceptions. The word can remove those impurities in my thinking and my behavior. Just let it soak. Reflect on it. It takes time to do this. One reason we're such a superficial culture, we never take time just to think and reflect. A, then, would be apply. How do I apply this word that washes me? As so I go through the book, or go through the day with this book in mind, those words in mind, I drive down the road and I come to a stoplight. I see a person on the side of the road, poorly dressed, with a cardboard sign, wants money. My immediate natural reflexive thought is, it's probably a scam, and I kind of resent him being there. And I'm not even going to look him in the eye, certainly not going to give him anything, I'm just going to ignore him and move on. That's my reflexive thought. But then I remember what the book says about love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Him. That man that I will not only not give money, I won't even make eye contact, and I resent him. He's my neighbor. I didn't plan on having those initial negative thoughts. They're just there, just kind of natural, and it needs washing. So what do I do? That's the next problem. Do I give him some money? Do I pray for him? Take him out to a restaurant? You know, the word will just start convicting and changing and challenge some of your thinking. And I'm always hesitant to give money unless I really know the situation, but I can certainly pray. And so I can pray and change my attitude toward my neighbor. Later in the day, I talk with someone and find out he disagrees with me politically. And all of a sudden, my reflexive thought is that this guy just doesn't get it. He's ignorant. 
I mean, how can he even think that way? And then I think and I realize, well, I'm probably every bit as divisive and part of the problem as every other screamer on social media. I'm as dirty as anyone else. Or I see a politician on TV, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, first reaction, he's probably not too positive. What's the book tell me about them? Pray for them. You ever pray for Hillary? Or the Donald? So the, that's what the book says. Get the dirt out. Let the word wash you. I go home for lunch and Ellen does or says something that irritates me. Doesn't happen often. But my reflexive action is to go, well, do what real men do. Go silent. She doesn't even know what she said, did or said. But she can tell something's wrong. What's the book say about that? Husbands die for your wives and I'm acting like this? Get the dirt out. Those are just a few thoughts I have through the day, and those are just the little dirty ones. I've got a lot darker thoughts than that. And here's the deal. Those thoughts equip me for bad works. They'd be bad feelings, bad behaviors. They lead to anger, things like that. Bad relationships and a bad life before God. I'm dirty and I need cleansing of the word. Part of the superficiality of a lot of self-help literature in our day is that they say you can choose whatever attitude you ought to have. You can decide what kind of person you will be. No, you cannot. Now, for a moment, for a short while, by sheer willpower, you might be able to override your general disposition, but as a general rule, the patterns of thoughts that we have, what goes on in our minds are deeply, deeply grounded, and you don't just wake up one day and say, okay, I'm going to choose to have a different attitude, I'm going to be kind and generous and joyful, just on my own willpower. You cannot. It's not that you will not, you cannot. My grandson's name is Caden, and he's in kindergarten. And here's what my daughter posted, my daughter-in-law posted a couple weeks ago. I sent Caden to his second time out of the morning. When he came out, he had tears in his eyes and he said, I'm afraid I'm going to grow up and be a bad guy. I don't know why I keep making the same bad choices over and over again. Five years old, already dirty. And he knows it. And he can't help it. Paul said the same thing. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Can any of you relate to that? I'm trapped. I'm a sinner. I make bad choices. I have bad attitudes. Even when I don't want to, I'm dirty. And then Paul says, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I can get the cleansing I need, but it's not going to be through self-help. Your mind needs to be renewed, it needs to be washed, and you can't do it on your own. Baptism is the start of the change, and then the Word is the process of the change. So you let Scripture into your mind and penetrate into your being and reflect on it, spend time with that. See, a lot of people say they believe in the book, but they never read it. They're not devoted to the book. Sometimes in churches, we, we become superficial, you know, and we measure spirituality in goofy ways like, well, how much of the book have you read? Uh, how much of the book do you know? It's really not about information. God's goal is not for you to get all the way through the scriptures. God's goal is for the scriptures to get all the way through you. So don't do the superficial stuff. Come to God, say, God, change me. Let this book penetrate my life, which leads to P is pray. I engulf my time in Scripture with conversation with God. I'm talking to Him as I read. It may help to keep a journal. 
And you could pray something like this, Lord, you know that I cannot transform my thought patterns on my own. My default mode is toward self-centeredness, anxiety, small and petty thoughts, greedy thoughts. So, so Lord, would you change my mind? Would you cleanse my mind? See, studying the scriptures is learning about God, which is very important. We need to get familiar with this book. Biblical illiteracy is rampant in the church. Praying the scriptures is being with God. It's interacting with him over the word and communicating. So you need both the learning and the being with. And you pray, Lord, there's times I'm blind. Would you open my eyes? We're all blind in some ways. One Sunday morning, I had a lousy attitude, which is not really good for the preacher to have. Anyway, I, I just had a critical spirit. I think it was towards someone or some group or something. Anyway, and this wasn't here. I never have a lousy attitude here. Um, <laughs> sometimes I read scripture during communion, which, by the way, if you run out of things to do at communion, read the Bible. Let God speak to you. So I, I just opened up the Bible, and I just randomly opened it, and lo and behold, it fell open to Luke 6, 37. I think God may have had a hand in this. Luke 6.37 says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. I don't know. Okay, thanks, God. He's speaking to me, obviously. And so the book is trying to get the dirt out. So I'll read a little more. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your eye? Why do you do that? Why do I do that? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take this speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own? You hypocrite Weber, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. It was almost as if God was speaking audibly to me. Weber, you need to hear this. You wonder why you're so miserable. You wonder why your attitude stinks. It's because your heart and mind are dirty. Let me clean you up. Let the word cleanse you. And I was convicted during that communion service. Some of you say, yeah, 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 I tried to read the Bible, I don't get much out of it. And, and there's times that it is, you know, it's not, you know, earth-shaking and, and stuff like that. But I would suggest vary your reading. Uh, for instance, try reading one book and just focus on one book of the Bible for a while, you know, over several months. I'm focusing on the book of Psalms right now. I'd read it one in the morning, a couple during the day, one in the evening. And what I like about the Psalms, is they just pray for you. And they really help your prayer life, you know. But I can't do that for the rest of my life. I'll change and move to some other book at another time. By the way, in the Psalms, in some monasteries, they read, this, read every psalm every week, 150 psalms every week. If you get through 150 psalms in a month, you're probably doing pretty good. That's realistic. And then, uh, but you just have to try some different approaches. Uh, another thing about this is you change as you age. Your relationship to others changes, and your relationship to God should be changing as well. So if you're doing the same kind of Bible reading over and over over the years, and your Bible reading seems flat, you need to change it up somehow. Try journaling, get into Sunday school, listen to the Bible on a Bible app, you know, uh, vocally. Uh, I like reading through, looking for things like Matthew 1 and 2 in the Christmas story. Look for how many times it talks about an event fulfilling what it says in the Old Testament. Uh, one year, many, many years ago, I just read through the whole Bible looking for all the places where it talks about worship. And I highlighted all that. It, there was a highlight on almost every page of the Bible. Worship is what we were made for. So this little tribe of desert nomads changed the world because of a book. There are no longer any Amorites or Hittites or Jebusites or Moabites. They're still Israelites. The rabbis used to say, read the book, know the book, love the book, do the book, die, live the book, 
die the book. I want to be transformed. I want to know my calling. I want to know my Lord. And so I have to be devoted to this book. Let's pray. Lord, this is one of the very best gifts we have ever been given, the written revelation of your will, of a story that tells us everything we need to know for a healthy life in you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of the book, for our church to be known for following the book, but even more for following and loving the author of this book. And as we enter into the Christmas season, may we make the book a daily part of our diet, a daily part of our celebration. Help us to reflect, apply, and pray that your will will become our will. Amen.